0: to Highfield Church and to our Tony totally Highfield Lecture with a Difference. Uh, for those of you who don't want to come to Highfield, my name is Eric Robertson, one of the staff team, and it's my job just to do some housekeeping and so to warmly welcome you uh, here. Uh, if you happen to need the facilities, uh, we have the one room over on my right at the front of church. When to the Highfield Lecture next term, there will be a choice of blues at the back of church. So uh, I bet you can't wait for that. Um, I can see no reason why there would be a fire, there are no candles lit, but if there was, just go out the way you came in and there are several exits. We have refreshments at the back of church, and at the end of our time this evening, please do uh, stay behind and and join us for uh, refreshments. Um, I'm now going to uh, hand over to Pete Williams, who is going to then introduce um, our guest lecturer, um, Paul Miller from Aberdeen. And I'd like to say lots, and this is Kirsty Young, no, not Kirsty Young, Roy Plumley. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so uh, many people have been uh, working hard over the last few weeks to, uh, to bring this together. Uh, not least, up on stage here, we have a combination of uh, Southampton University's Chamber Choir and uh, members of the uh, Highfield Choir and local community who have volunteered to sort of join in uh, as a scratch choir for this event. So let's give these guys a round of applause. Thank you. Uh, they have uh, been uh, rehearsed and are now going to be conducted uh, by George Richford, who can now uh, uh, wave us some there. Uh, we have uh, an organist, our church organist, uh, Muriel Billington, on the organ. But my castaway tonight is Welsh composer Paul Miller.
2: <laughs> uh,
1: so Paul is a professor of composition at the University of Aberdeen. So we, we uh, flew him down here on uh, Friday night via Manchester. Uh, He's a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, and his albums, uh, A Tender Light and I Saw Eternity, uh, have both been best-selling albums. The New York Times has called Paul one of the most important composers to have emerged from Welsh choral music. And critics have described Paul's compositions as having serene beauty and as being music of deep spiritual searching. So, uh, Paul, the first question I'd like to launch us off with this evening is, Is how do you see uh, the relationship between
3: uh, spirituality and music? Well, I have to say, thank you, Peter. First of all, thank you for inviting me down. Um, Peter and I met very briefly, or at least we were in the same room at the... Um C.S. Lewis, the foundation of the stone at Westminster Abbey, and so then we we, we met and spoke out. That. I can't, I have to say there's no, no better place to be cast away than here. Um, I've spent a few days here staying with uh, Peter and Heather, and it's been absolutely brilliant. Um, you welcoming me into your community. I came to the service this morning at eleven and I was astounded by by the wonderful testament you have to Christ. And loads of people came and spoke to me, they didn't know who I was. And I thought that's a real testament. Thinking something and doing something that Things. So it's wonderful. Thank you for, for welcoming me. So, yeah, for me, um, faith and uh, music and creativity are, are the same thing. Um, I wanted when I was a little boy, I was very naughty. Um, I'm still reasonably naughty, um, and I was um, with my brother taken uh, to a river on Anglesey. I grew up on Anglesey in North Wales. And the river is called Dimplikwi, for you Welsh speakers out there. And I um, rather stupidly fell in, and I couldn't swim. And I was drowning, my brother had gone off. Um, And I, at that point, thought that I was going to die. Uh, And something amazing happened to me. I surrendered to death as a child of nine. And at that moment, I felt the most amazing warmth and feeling that I've ever felt, never since, um, that actually death was not a um, and I was dragged out, and you'll be happy to realise I'm not actually a ghost, I'm here. I was dragged <laughs> out and um, resuscitated and brought round. I said to my dad at that moment, I want to find out what that warmth is. And that's what led me to St. Asaph's Cathedral and to the church and to speak with the dean and to join the choir. Mm-hmm. And for me, um, even though I thought initially I would become a priest, I think the world is glad that I didn't because I'd be terrible. Um, but for me, music is a kind of surrogate priesthood. Interesting. Now, I guess most people
1: uh, who've heard of you from the uh, Military Wives Choir uh, Endeavour, uh, and in particularly in 2011, uh, your song Wherever You Are uh, was indeed the first song to be number one in the UK singles chart and in the classical chart uh, at the same time. Uh, and, uh, you know, the military Wives Choir conducted by Gareth Mullane and uh, lots of uh, television coverage about that. So I'd like to to play a little snatch of that and then uh, for you to tell us a little bit about about that project and and how it came about. Hopefully the technology will uh, work for us. I was speaking to uh, a lady in this morning's service and mentioning this piece of music to her and and she said, uh, oh yes, the the tune is still stuck in my head. That is a good sign of a good piece of music, isn't it? The tune is still stuck in your head. So how did you come to be involved with the, the Military Wives Choir project?
3: Yes, it's all a bit random, to be honest. Um, I, I for some bizarre reason, I've been invited to Chelsea Football Club's Christmas party. <laughs> um, I'm not a supporter of Chelsea Football Club, uh, uh, but I've been dragged along to this, kicking and screaming. Um, anyway, when I was there, we uh, uh, yeah, had a couple of gin and, and you and know, the dancing started. And um, um, I love dancing, at uh, all these things. And uh, so I, found myself, me and one other person was dancing to Brown Girl in the Ring by Bromia, And that was Gareth Malone. And so uh, I knew from that moment that we were going to be friends. And so, <laughs> so we became friends, we were chatting. Anyway, not long after that, he, he, he said to me, uh, he had rather too many whiskeys, and he said to me, look, I wonder if you'd write me a song. And I said, right, of course. <laughs> Thought nothing of it. Thought he'd never contact me again. Anyway, uh, a few weeks after, he phones me up and says, I wasn't joking about that. I'm, I'm actually, I'm in a real problem here. I'm, I'm doing a TV programme about military wives. So uh, a group of women who, you know, their husbands and partners um, are off uh, doing whatever they're doing in Afghanistan and so on. And uh, there's this group of women who have no community. They have no voice. No one cares about them. No one listens to them. He said, I want to give them a voice. And the best way he said, he said, I think I can do this is through a choir. So he founded these two, there are now 59 military cars choirs with thousands of, of people yeah. in all over the world. Uh, I get bombarded with emails and letters from, from people who sing this song. Mm. And so uh, he, he said, Will I write it? So I said, well, Of course I will. But um, if they are to have a voice, then the words must be theirs. Mm. So." Um, what we decided to do is to get hold of all her letters and notes to their partners and back um, uh, during the period of this, and um, with permission, of course. And they sent them to my little house on the will see And this big box of things appears, uh, And of course, you start reading through them. And what you, what one doesn't realise is these are, could be people's last words to each other. Mm. Um, and they're full of great deep emotion. You know, even just a simple line which may sound to us here as twee, in a deep a moment when you may never see somebody again, actually becomes an important line. And actually six of the men whose lyrics I used in this died during the, the recording of this. And so those lyrics became incredibly important to the wives of those people. And the very first one was a bracelet uh, that she'd written down, wherever you are, my heart will keep you safe. And I thought, well, that's what it is, because in essence, it's about seeking um, comfort across distance. Um, and then um, Gareth said, look, I wonder if you can get a line there to connect to the War British Legion. He never told me why. So I thought, all right, well, the motto of the War British Legion, I'm sure many of you know, is greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. One of the most profound lines that Jesus ever said. And they're all pretty profound. But that is incredibly profound. So I decided to set that at the very end as a counter melody over the top. Well, when I sent the song off to Gareth, he phones me up and he goes, I don't think this is going to work. I, said, I don't think it's the right song. Um, he said, well, I'll try it out tonight in rehearsal and I'll let you know. So he, uh, he goes off and he, uh, uh, he phones me up in rehearsal. And everybody's crying. All the women are crying their eyes out. And he said, uh, I think we cracked it. <laughs> I said, you know play. little um, And so uh, we did, and then he told me where the premiere was going to be, because he didn't want to freak me out beforehand. So the premiere was going to be live at the Royal British Legion Festival of Remembrance at the Royal Albert Hall in front of 5,000 people, live on BBC One in front of the Queen. I said, I'm glad he told me that beforehand, but of course the women didn't know, so they only found out the day before. And wow. Of course, they go out onto the stage, and I was there in the audience. And I, it's the first standing ovation they've ever had at the Royal British Legion festival, because mm-hmm. here are a bunch of women who are not singers; and they never said that they were, um, who have decided to get together and sing a song, which is not easy, um, and they did, and they pulled it off. And I was incredibly proud of them. It went on to uh, be recorded by Decca, uh, a hundred percent charity single, to raise money for the Royal British Legion and the for Sapper mm-hmm. Forces Help. And we raised nearly a million pounds in the first week um, and 556,000 copies in the first two days. Mm. Um, and it became the second uh, fastest selling single ever, mm. um, second only camera in the wind. And so of course uh, we won a Brit. I was the like, Brits, that makes it up in And uh, all of this, what i is been able to do is for the Royal British Legion of the SAPA to build two enormous houses. So people who have come back from a service, who have had maybe lost a limb or a belly, all of this money is able to support them and has supported them for the last six years. So, you know, if people say physique doesn't change the world, they're completely wrong. It's changed the world for those people. Uh, and it's one of the things, even though people say, oh, it's just a little tune, Well, it is, but I'm quite proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> so as
1: Paul says, let um, I me mean, get that working here. Oh. I first uh, came across his work. This is partly me by, unfortunately, in military writing. I wasn't a viewer of that particular programme. Uh, but I came across his work at Westminster Abbey uh, in 2013 when we had this uh, unveiling of a memorial to C.S. Lewis, the writer, in Poet's Corner. Uh, and I had the privilege of, I was actually sitting in the choir stools, at the back of the choir stools uh, when the choir sang a setting of one of C.S. Lewis's yes. poems called Love's As Warm As Tears. And I discovered thereafter that this setting of this poem had been composed uh, by Paul. Uh, so I'd like to uh, play you uh, part of uh, this piece of music here uh, on this clip. Soaring stuff, isn't it? Uh, I later edited a, a book called C.S. Lewis at Poets Corner, and Paul contributed a, a chapter to this book. Uh, telling a story that connects that spiritual experience, that sort of near-death experience you had as a child, uh, with then the influence that C.S. Lewis uh, had upon you. So uh, fill that out a little bit for us. Yeah,
3: I, I was very fortunate to be involved in that, uh, to, to write that piece. Um, that is the only setting of C.S. Lewis that's allowed to be set to music, by the way. But the the state guards his poetry and his, his text very, very just um, um, powerfully, and so they should. Um, but I've always been drawn to C.S. Lewis. I mean, and there's not a person in this room, I'm sure, who hasn't read The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, or Magician's Nephew, or Voyage of the Dawn and Treader, all of these wonderful, wonderful books that, if you, that show you the true face of Christianity in all sorts of different ways, without ever revealing it to you, which I think is the wonderful thing that Lewis had. And of course, um, for me, what I was, I was struck by is particularly um, one line, you know, we, we search for the hidden country. And another line: We live in the shadowlands. There's always this same mystical thing that we don't quite know. We don't quite know where it is or how to find it. But sometimes you have to just uh, have faith. Um, and for me, the idea of a hidden country somewhere is a bit like composing. You know, you sit down at your desk or, or you're, you're searching for for finding something, and you have to reach out into the unknown with a certain amount of faith. Um, and so I was drawn always to to, to Lewis's. Poetry. Well, uh, I'm sure many people don't know his poetry. He's more known with his apologetics and his children's stories, but the poetry is incredibly powerful. And when I was asked to do this piece, I was given three choices, um, and I chose this Love's as Warm as Tears" because, for a number of reasons. And when, the, when I spoke to James O'Donnell at Westminster, Street, he said, "Oh, we weren't expecting you to do that one. You thought you were going pick one of the more easier ones." And I said, "Well, actually, I was drawn to it because I'm quite often drawn to the contradictions in faith." Um, well, contradiction is not the right word. And you'll be able to give me the right word because you're a philosopher. Paradoxes. Paradox is the right
2: word. Uh,
3: there's a more gentle way of saying contradiction. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I love the fact that, um, you know, to be first, you must be last. To live, you must die. All of these paradoxes that happen. And there's a lot of them in this poem. Loves as warm as tears isn't necessarily a paradox, but it is an interesting line. Um, which equates pain with love, uh, which I want to see at lines that comes through as so well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when I set this text, I want to get those, those two sides. the beauty that we find in love is only beautiful when we understand the pain that comes with it as well, uh, otherwise it means nothing. You know, if you go to a service, if you go to a piece of music and it's just light after light after light, you're not learning anything. Um, you have to understand the true nature of darkness to be able to even remotely understand what light is. Um, and you know, C.S. Lewis talks a lot about suffering, being God's megaphone, for raising a death world, and all that kind of stuff. But you agree with it or not, it is beautiful and is important to think about. And so in this piece, there are, there are, those, there are those dark moments where you get some loves fierce as fire, and you get this crushing fire chord in the middle of it. Um, which is a series of wrong notes one to want a better world. Um, so yeah, so this is a reflection of those those
2: paradoxes
1: hmm. I wonder if that sense of of, of reaching out and, and searching for something beyond and, and more uh, is something that's uh, reflected in our third piece of music if we could have the uh, PowerPoint up. Which uh, when I first uh, saw your selection, I thought, "Oh, that's a little bit left field, up uh, against the the other pieces of music that we have." But but the the song "Bright Eyes" by Art Garfunkel, which many people will know uh, from the the, uh, the uh, movie cartoon of uh, Watership Down, uh, the novel by Richard Adams, uh, and this song again speaks very much of that sort of sense of of reaching out into into the unknown.
3: Is that why? Chose it. Yes, I, cho- I chose it for, for a number of reasons. Uh, I chose it for a number of reasons. Firstly, uh, because I actually adore the book. Um, I don't know if anyone's ever read the book, Woodership Down by Richard Adams. My I was very lucky enough to have met Richard Adams. They died, I, mean, I think, last year. And we issued that an incredibly brilliant, brilliant life-driven story. If you've not read "Play Dogs by Richard Adams, then get reading it. It's phenomenal. Anybody who likes dogs, you'd be crying. at the end. So this, uh, is a stunning book about friendship, about trust, about love, in the most profound way, through the eyes of rabbits. Um, it's amazing. Uh, so for me, in, in the little uh, cartoon that had come out, where Simon and Garfunkel do this song, written by Mike Batt, the great uh, English writer of popular song, um, it is the most perfect song. Mike was asked to write a song about death. But He didn't. He wrote a sign about hope through death, you know. And in the images of the words of Bright Eyes, he touches upon how can a light that burns so brightly suddenly fade and die, and he's asking how can that happen. And in that searching, he's finding the answers. Mm. And uh, and I think it's it's a tale of, of such wonderful, such wonderful sacrifice. Um, there's that one of the scene, I don't even remember where Bigwig. Um, have you seen this already? Um, uh, he's decided that he is going to defend this, hole, this rabbit hole from whatever is going to come at him, and he does. He's defending everybody, um, even until it's he, looking like he's going to die, is he going to give up? And I think that is the struggle that a lot of us have in life, is uh, I And mean, in this song, we just get a glimpse a very simple song in this or 5 This a, a, a scrap of harmony, but it's stunningly beautiful. Mm.
1: Well, let's listen to uh, a snatch of uh, "Bright Eyes" sung here by Art Garfunkel. You just want to get a candle? Don't you? <laughs> well, our um, next piece of music takes us back, uh, what, 500 years or so, uh, to a composer called Orlando Gibbons. Uh, a piece of music called CC The Word is Incarnate, which is in a, in a few minutes our Scratch Choir uh, will uh, sing for us. Um, but this also sort of links into the, the beginnings of your, your, your spiritual che- uh, search as a child, and, as you say, getting involved in the choir and so on. Tell us about that that first time you went to the cathedral and heard the, yes. the choir. It was a. Uh, it,
3: it was a, well, this is linking back to what I said at the very beginning. When I. Um, decided to go and seek out what this feeling was that I had, I went first to the local Anglican cathedral, which is the cathedral of St. Hassan, which I, as I walked in, um, the choir was singing this piece, see, uh, the word is incarnate, God is made man in the womb of a virgin, uh, by the great uh, composer, Orlando Gibbons. Um, and I was bowled over by this line the lie that me uh, line after line of, of, of all these weaving lines, I, I saw something so magical in, in that that I felt that that was what I was supposed to be getting involved in. And so when I had this meeting with the Dean of the cathedral, um, uh, I said, uh, actually, I've changed my mind. I know what they are going to do now. I want to be in that choir. And he said, well, we don't just have anyone in that choir. <laughs> he said, you'll have to audition. So anyway, I did, and I got, luckily enough, I didn't have a voice of a foghorn at that age, and they, they let me in. Uh, and it was the start of getting involved in choral and vocal music. Um, I have to say, it was an auspicious start, because the, after I auditioned, the very first day of starting, as I was walking in, the choirmaster master was being marched out by police. Okay. Uh, enough about that. Uh, I think you can look that up on Google. Um, but um, we were, well, I survived that. Uh, so we were, it, was, it, was, it was a brilliant start. Um, um, I have to say that it's nothing more brilliant uh, for any person trying to find um, the meaning of life uh, than through music, um, or through the great utterances of music. Um, another uh, art in all of its forms enriches us in the most unbelievable way. Every lecture I do at the university begins with a poem. Uh, I take the composition students out to see contemporary dance, to see ballet. Um, I think that um, it's important to all of us to look at how every human being that we can has touched the subject of immortality and life, um, and how we exist as people. And there's nothing more immediate than music, nothing more something that touches you instantly. And
2: you
1: know what, the great thing about music is you don't have to speak the language. <coughs> so let us uh, welcome uh, onto the platform George to conduct our choir uh, in singing uh, see, see The Word is Incarnate uh, by Orlando Gibbons. <coughs> <coughs>
2: Oh,
3: It's an amazing piece. I, I don't know if you followed the words of that. If you could, they signed very well. It's an incredibly difficult piece to sing but they're well done, everybody, it's very hard. But it's the New Testament in seven minutes. <laughs> but you wish sermons were like that. <laughs> you could, everything you need. You get you know the, the child is born, the powers of hell are shaken as Christ dies and then is rewarding glorious ascension. It's all in there, everything you need to know. Uh, in those seven days, and I was, uh, as a child, imagine, thrown, <coughs> thrown into a, a well, huh? <laughs> You know, and this has been sung for nearly six hundred years. Um, exactly, as it should be, unchanged and altered for six hundred years. That's what draws me to the church: that it is our past, our present, and our future, unchanging. Um, yeah.
1: So, as a as a composer, um, you talked about reaching. Uh, for the unknown uh, and uh, hopefully discovering it in time to meet your deadlines and so on. Uh, How literally, as a a composer and artist, how literally or seriously do you take the the ancient notion of artistic
3: inspiration? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, Because, you know, at the end of the day, you have to write something. Um, You can't wait for the muse to to come. But um, I've discovered that actually, um, my grandmother once said to me, a lazy man finds time for nothing, a busy man will find time for everything. Um, and I think it's the truth with inspiration, that the more you sit at the desk and the work at a regular pace, the more inspiration is more likely to find you. Um, and so uh, that's how I kind of work. But there are some times, you know, I'm not Mozart, you know, Mozart would write an entire piece um, and then from the base up, finishing off with the narrative, as he did with the settings of the Requiem that he did. Um, so I'm not like that, of course, nobody ever has been since. Um, but you can have ideas that mull over as you go to sleep and you wake up and a finished piece can be somewhere near there. Um, uh, there are different types of composers. There are like Beethoven who painstakingly looked at every single note and took him years to, to write this ninth like, Um mm-hmm. I'm not like that, but um, I do believe fundamentally that there, there, is, uh, uh, there is this idea of divine inspiration as well. Convinced of that the more I live.
2: Hmm.
1: So tell us about our fifth uh, piece of music, which is going to be uh, by the composer John Rutter, uh, well known for composing uh, sacred music. Uh, And we're going to have uh, a sort of Christmas carol, I suppose it is, uh, from him called What's Sweet Music. But tell us a little bit about, about Rutter and this piece of music, why you've chosen it. Yeah,
3: I mean, I, to be honest, uh, John gets a bit bad press from, from certain corners of the choral world. I don't quite know why, because um, he, he does what he does, and he does it well. He never says he's going to do anything other than what he says he's going to do. And what strikes me about John's music, and I've come to know well over the, over the last few years, uh, is it's the, second, it's the very first piece I sang as a choir by. So I joined after the choir master was taken out. <laughs> you, you <win> that bit. a <laughs> choir master came in, and this was the piece that we started learning. And what struck me about it is it's instinctively beautiful. Uh, it's telling this wonderful tale of the power of music and so on. Um, instantly, John has an ability, um, with his melodies, to, to be original. I and mean, there's lots of people who have copied him. Um, but he was original. Um, and it's a gorgeous, he has a gorgeous sense of pacing, mm-hmm. of drama. Uh, and I think uh, he's one of the great core composers. Um, and once um, you know, time has passed and we're able to, to look at him with fresh eyes, people will realize that. I was very fortunate to know Sir John Taverner, the great English composer, who wrote the song for which was performed at Princess Diana's funeral. Um, and Sir John never had a good review about his music in his life. Uh, he was much maligned by the critical uh, press. Um, and then the day of his Every single man in the dog crawled out to save one of the <laughs> greatest British composers and ever lived. And Lady Talbot was furious. <laughs> <laughs> I wish somebody had said this trip that was on, uh, And So I think sometimes in Britain, we neglect our uh, legends until it's too late. Mm. And so I think John Roger is left out of the most important choral composers in British choral history, and I was included for that reason. Marvelous. So let us, uh, again, uh, have
1: uh, our scratch choir Uh, perform this piece for us. Thanks very much guys. Yeah, if, uh, if the shops can start Christmas this early, why not the church? I mean, come on. <laughs> so, uh, let me uh, advance my power to make sure I know where I uh, uh, am in this. We've had uh, Gibbons. Here we go. Um, William Matthias. 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 Yeah, I pronounced it wrong again. I it wrong <laughs> again. Matthias. Uh, it was someone yeah, you uh, studied under in, in Wales. Well, tell us a little uh, about William Yes, uh,
3: William was a very important um, composer in Wales and choral music. Um, he uh, was born in 1934, died in 1992, and very short life in 1957. Um, but he um, was professor of music at the University of Bangor, um, where and I grew up in so it's the closest university. And I had a very pushy grandmother. Um, I think many of us do. I'm uh, gathering, getting a reaction to people. Uh, and so she decided, when I decided I wanted to be a composer, in things, uh, she said, Well, I know a composer. So uh, she went off to Will's house, knocked on his door, and said, My grandson's nine, and he wants to be a composer, <laughs> you're going to teach him. So I kind of simply maxed out because he just retired. Um, he took a little retirement due to ill health, and he was looking for a project. Uh, and so I became that product. <laughs> Uh, and so I would turn up every fortnight with uh, various harmony and counterpoint and polyphony and all this stuff, orchestration, and uh, I sit in his uh, conservatory overlooking the Menai Straits, a uh, beautiful piece of art, uh, writing music. And um, I learned uh, so much from, from him you know, over the years. Um, and then, of course, he fell incredibly ill, um, and he, he was dying. And uh, I think well, I was one of the last people to see him. I was still quite young, and he loved to drink, you Will. Know, he really liked a glass of whatever was going. Um, and when I went to see him at the end, he was in bed, and Yvonne said to me, you haven't got to drink any dark on he can't, he's not allowed any. I was about 10-12 or something. I said, no, no I don't have any. So I go up into his bedroom, and I sit on his bed, and he goes, has she gone? So I went through a and at him, and I go, yeah, and he pulls out a bottle of scotch, that was the kind he was, it's really interesting that you know we, we talk about is someone their art. You know, Oscar Wilde, of course, has taught us that you know, You're not necessarily your art. You know, you can you love Wagner but hate the man's politics. You don't have to. They're not the same thing. Um, well it Will, it's, it's that's not true. This music is him, um, full of life, full of uh, of, 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 of wit, um, a, a, a full of like, humour. Uh, and, and lively, lively rhythms and cross-rhythms. Um, and the interesting fact of this, so in 1981 he wrote this piece we're going to hear now called Let the People Praise The Old God for the Wedding of Prince Charles and Lady Diana Spencer. Little did any of us know that 30 years later I'd been doing a similar thing for William and Catherine. Uh, so it's a little bit of a stroke of I don't know what, but um, uh, I just thought it'd be nice to include this, because he's always in my mind. My, my. And the interesting thing, whenever I write a note down, I always find him going, do you really mean that boy? <laughs> no. And <laughs> his favourite line was always, I like it, but it's two bars too long. And I'd say, which two bars? He goes, ah, then you'd be the teacher, and I'd be the student.
1: Marvellous. <laughs> well, let's uh, hear this uh, YouTube clip of the Atlanta chorus uh, singing Let the People Praise Thee. Oh God.
3: No. He told a very funny story actually. Uh, there's a piece he wrote called Sir Christmas, I don't know if any of you know that, you guys might know it, a uh, uh, Christmas car. And at the end of it, they um, used to shout, Noel! Um, Noel! So anyway, it was premiere at King's College, Cambridge, and um, one guy was late, a the baritone there, and they said to him, We're going to shout sod off at the end. <laughs> okay. And he goes really because yeah, Will's here, you know he loves the laugh
1: and stuff, so we're gonna do it just for cool. him. Yeah. So he comes to this fish and goes da-da-da-da-da. Nobody does anything but this one guy. <laughs> 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 he's quite a famous organist now. Yeah. Uh, the the next piece you've chosen is uh by Frederick uh, Chopin, his Notter in in C minor. Um uh Chopin, so uh there was a bit of a sort of family connection here, in a in a in a sense that you were telling me about. Yes,
3: the, uh, yeah, the Sechenov one. It, it's uh, it's. Um, I uh, my my father is Polish. Um, our our name is originally Jelonowski, um, and my grandmother and her, her her sister-in-law and my father, nine children of my father's family um, had to leave Krakow during the Second World War. My grandfather died in Auschwitz. Um, he had to stay behind so that they could they could escape. Um, and so there's that Polish, uh, strong Polish connection that's um, been with me, um, uh, <laughs> particularly from my, my grandmother um, and uh, my great aunt Ethel, um, who lived to the age of 107, 1897 uh, to 2004. And when I asked her how she'd lived so long, she goes, Hitler's not going to get me, God's not having me either. <laughs> um, she goes, It's true. She lived on um, cigarettes and booms. Um, <coughs> a, a great example of what not to do with to, to understand But um, what struck me is that in talking with her and indeed my grandma, um, and when I hadn't I is in all my polar music, there's this low stuff, in deep fifths and thirds. And only my, my, my saying, I remember my great aunt was saying, don't you think this is our kind of Russian-Polish heritage? Because Milanovsky, the Russian man of the Russian Orthodox Church, which you always have playing. Um, as I I was growing up, so I just wonder whether that's there. But I was drawn to show by one of the greatest Polish composers, Ekster Penderecki and Gilecki and and there you go. Um, And I I was drawn to particularly The Nocturne in C-sharp, because it's minor, because um, it's now connected uh, through various performances and various films to the Second World War. It's that famous story of that wonderful young Polish pianist it was kept alive in the concentration camps because she could play it, yeah. um, and the common kept kept making it play. And then there's, you know, that famous, the pianist, Sperryman, um, um, where that, this uh, nocturne. So it's become synonymous with that period, although it wasn't published in Chopin's lifetime, it was published 25 years after his death. Um, so, um, and it's a phenomenal piece, uh, which is incredibly moving. Mm. And uh, here is the beginning of this
1: piece uh, played uh, by uh, the pianist, uh, Tiffany Poon. And our final uh, piece of music uh, is in Caritas from The Royal Wedding. But this is, a, in a sense, a piece that you had, had written and then rewrote
3: yeah.
1: uh, in, a, in a different context. Fill us in how that came about.
3: Yes, well, I was uh, sitting at my desk in the university marking first year harmony papers. Not a task, I enjoyed it, I can tell you that. And um, everyone was failing as I was going through. Um, and then I got a phone call. Um, I pick it up, and the person says, you know, um, this is uh, William Wales here. I'd like to speak to Paul Newman. And I said, I don't know anybody called William Wales." <laughs> 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 some people call me Prince William. I so, said, oh, right." <laughs> <laughs> he said, well, have has heard some of your music at St. Andrews University, Chapel singing and um, we'd like to include it in our wedding? Now, at this point, the wedding hadn't been announced. Uh, and I thought somebody was winding me up. I thought sooner or later someone was going to burst in the door and say,
2: yeah.
3: um, so I just agreed, yeah, yeah, okay, that's fine. Um, and anyway, a few weeks later, the note comes, this letter, uh, on Her Majesty's service, uh, and it's uh, this, the, the private secretary, Jamie who had written this thing, and then next to it was, a, was a, a thing, MI5, that I had to sign to say I wouldn't say anything until it was announced. So I thought, oh, it's actually true, this. But um, I had to get a witness. So the guy walking past at the time was a friend of mine called Alison McDonald's. I dragged him into the office. And somebody witnessed this. But the great thing is he witnessed it, but he could say whatever he wanted. <laughs> 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 Sorry I mean, because kind of typical British kind of, you know. So uh, uh, So anyway, um, so what it was is that the piece that I'd written was called The Setting of Now Seen to the Crimson Petal, which is by Alfred Tennyson. There's a road not far from here called Tennyson Road, I noticed the other day. anyway. He, uh, so that was the setting that I, I had um, It went off, and everyone agreed. Uh, and then I uh, went for a meeting at Western and the dean of Westminster sort of the the it still is Dr. John Hall, lovely man. Uh, he said, well, I'm not quite sure um, a song about two lovers lying naked in others' arms, sung at the wedding of the future king William the fifth, is going to go down too well uh, amongst some po- members of the, of the, of the, of the population. So um, anyway, uh, we agreed that, that maybe it wasn't, although I have to say the Song of Solomon is much more raunchy than, uh, than that. Some yeah, Song of songs hey, much more raunchy than, than that. Anyway. So I decided that I would reset it musically, um, and the words that I always wanted to set, and was, in fact was thinking about setting later, was the Ubi Caritas. Where there is charity and love, God is there. And what struck me about those words, particularly in terms of this service, was that uh, Catherine, later Duchess of at Cambridge, she, would be, she was actually making a pledge at that wedding to serve for the first time. So she, she'd come to serve, not not be served, was what the pledge was being right? made. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that this, the unique counters which is normally sung at the washing of the feet on Monday, Thursday, would be exactly the right um, mm-hmm. thing. Anyway, so I had a day to reset it. Um, and I don't know people I don't know musicians the, mm-hmm. how difficult it is to change the selection of a poem to fit the music. I was, I was having nightmares, about this. I cancelled all my lectures. Um, no complaints by the students. <laughs> <laughs> and what I decided is, look, if you're going to deal with the Ubi Caritas text as a composer, there is one great big um, elephant in the room, and that is the um, composer Maurice Greenplay, who has done the most famous setting of that. Uh, and a beautiful set of ideas. He just takes the playing chart, and then harmonizes and that's it. It's very simple, very beautiful. Um, so I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to have to deal with Doruf, De right? Yeah, just as if when you're writing a symphony, you have to deal with Haydn and Mozart and Beethoven and Sibelius and all these people. Um, and so I thought, what I would do is I'm not going to ignore him, I'm going to put him in it. So uh, let's take the playing chart as a little. Buffing my cap to Mr. De Ruffler, um, Monsieur de Ruffler, mm-hmm. um, I thought at the very end I would have a quote from the original playing chart which De Ruffler uses. And because in our meetings, um, Catherine told me she particularly loves the sound of a solo boy singing a solo treble. There's nothing more powerful in a big cathedral than to hear one little boy sing a solo. Treble. It's very powerful. And so at the very end of my setting, this one little boy has to come forward and sing. Just, just that one little line. And so it was great because they all learnt it on the day. And then literally on the day, um, James O'Donnell picks one little guy and says, you're doing it. Um, his name is Thomas Featherstone, I, remember, I still remember. And, uh, he goes, yeah, all right." And, um, <laughs> Yeah, no fear at all. You go and goes out in front of 2.5 billion people and send it And uh, um, did a great job of it. Didn't crack a note, didn't, didn't, nothing. Um, and so, straight after this, at the wedding, I got 70,000 emails from people all over the world. They had letters, people stopped me in the street. I mean, most people from America or Australia who'd never heard Latin before. It's the only piece in the service's life. Um, and I get one letter which really, really affected me. And it was from a young guy in Texas, a few weeks later, maybe a month um, And he writes to me to say, w- one morning, I had a rope around my neck, and I was about to end it. And I heard this music coming somewhere. He said, I took the rope from around my neck to find out what it was. And he said, it was your piece. You'll be characters. And I wanted to write to you to say, that one act of stopping um, to find out what music was as Saved my life, and so you will never know who's listening. It's like when you're preaching a sermon uh, or you're you're meeting someone; you have no idea what state that person is in when you meet them or when they listen or when you perform. And um, it's important to always try and do your best and your work. <coughs> my dad, who's a bit of a joker, uh, said, "You better not let him hear any more music. We'll put the rope back." <laughs> <laughs> So uh, luckily he did buy the CD and he was fine. But I suppose, um, uh, I, I suppose the, the couple of points that I'm trying to make in this, when, when you asked me to come and talk about faith and music, um, we decided to do this slightly more unusual thing. So you'd actually hear music rather well, than just be talking about it. You know, uh, there's that wonderful line, is that you'll learn more in singing the psalms of many psalm." So um, and I think there's a bit of truth in that. Um, you'll learn more from listening to the great masters of music. Some of whom we, we've heard tonight, Chopin. You know, one of them, Gibbons, another. Um, and I think, John, as another, by listening to this music, you really do hear the voice of God coming through in the most profound ways. And for me, what my journey has been as a Christian um, uh, has been to to navigate um, between my own wants to do as a composer and what God is asking me to do as a composer. And that's not always easy. Uh, uh, And so trying to keep the message simple without being simplistic so that it can connect. Uh, There's no point in writing great, intense, complex works that don't connect to people uh, because your your job is as an evangelist if you are a writer of sacred music, uh, which is why the great writers of sacred music uh, are able to do that. Uh, in in, in great ways. So my my mission is to find that still small voice of calm um, and to try and win that as as stupidly and as as badly uh, as as my skills allow me, but nevertheless, to try to do that so that when people sit and listen to this music, something of the beauty that I felt as a child of warmth comes through to them. Mm. Well, let's listen
1: to the the opening of Ubi Caritas from uh, the broadcast of that uh, service itself. Uh, you can no doubt find this later uh, on YouTube yourself and uh, and hear the Choir Boy uh, at the end as well. So it comes to uh, that stage where we tell you that uh, on your desert island you will of course have rescued from the shipwreck uh, a copy of the complete works of Shakespeare and the Bible uh, in your favourite translation. Uh, but you get to rescue one other book on your life raft, as it were. Uh, so, what uh, book would you choose to have uh, on the island with you?
2: Ah! It's like
3: <laughs> the, the worst nightmare. I read mean, poetry all the time. I was telling you, I'm, 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 I love um, fantasy as well. I'm, I mean, my nephew's in Game of Thrones. You, know, did you watch that? So he sent me all the scripts a little bit beforehand. Don't tell me. Um, so, uh, so I love all that stuff. And then, um, like the, the the two writers that um, I, I I'm going to cheat if I can, um, the two writers that I think mean so much to me in terms of um, if I'm going to be on that island, I'm going to need a bit of escape. and it's C.S. Lewis and of course J.R. talking. Uh, I think that the complete works of Lewis and Tolkien, I give be pretty happy. <laughs> uh, it's
1: been a pretty thick volume. <laughs> uh, I grabbed a lot of that post, haven't I? Um, perhaps it's, it's on a Kindle. I, don't
3: know think, so. <laughs> I just think, you know, with Lewis wrote those wonderful Narnia tales, and then with the, with the, the, the Lord of the Rings, and, and The Hobbit and Silmarillion, I love the way the Silmarillion begins, you know, and then Tolkien uses it later on. Uh, Lewis uses it later on. It begins through music you know, Illavatar you know, reads and musical notes and then harmony comes from that. I just love all of that. And of course, Hindu texts and so on. So I couldn't do without those. And I could just find out a little bit more of the Witch King of Anwar. And I could find out a little bit more about collateral and do all that stuff which I don't have time to do. Um, so, you no, know, and I, I, I'm afraid, if I'm allowed, I'd like to take those. Sure. And traditionally you are
1: allowed one luxury item as well. And of course the most chosen item uh, is a piano. That's right. So would you like a piano with no idea? No, exactly. <laughs> the, the thing that, I
3: mean, I, I get very annoyed. I have a place right on the sea and I have a uh, piano there and literally I get it tuned by this guy and literally within 10 minutes it's out. Like, <laughs> and it drives me mad. Uh, so um, he's tuning it every week. Uh, so no, I, I could not be doing that. So I, I think if I'm allowed, I'll cheat again. Um, uh, I have one real sin uh, and that's how I really love gin and tonic <laughs> so I think I would have an endless supply of gin and tonic with ice and lime wow <laughs>
1: <laughs> I and mean, if you were f- Forced to choose just one of our eight pieces of music that we've heard this evening, which would which would you rescue as the ship was going
3: down? I think it would be the given's. I think it'd be the Gibbons. I think the interesting thing about all other given is it's music that never grows old. Of course, stylistically the world changes, but the music, the language, never grows old. Glenn Gould, you know the great American pianist? He was asked by NASA. They were sending a, uh, a pod into space to represent the human race. Should an alien ever find this, these things in this pod would represent the very best of the human race. The Shakespeare's in there. a Gould was asked what piece of music would go in there, and he picked Gibbons, Orlando Gibbons. So, you know, when um, alien Zard, whatever it is, discovers this stuff, uh, the greatest thing that, uh, in there that you'll find to represent us is the music of Orlando Gibbons. And I think it's it's stunning music, and, and it's music just like Tallis and Tomkins mm. and Bird and all of these composers of the Tudor Elizabethan period, um, first Elizabethan period. Mm. Um, it, it's, it's it's
1: stunning the music. Marvelous.
3: Well, I've had my opportunity
1: to uh, to ask you uh, some questions, but uh, this is something we wouldn't get to do if this were on radio. Uh, to give the audience an opportunity uh, to ask some questions. So, Keith. Fox over here has a a microphone which he's going to set up in the uh, in the aisle here. And if you would like to ask Paul a question and think why didn't Peter ask him that, well, here's your opportunity. Come up to uh, the microphone, and we've got ten minutes, or so, in which we can ask some questions before we we finish and have some refreshments at the back there. Anyone want to uh, be brave? Stand up. Come and ask us a question. Oh, it's always one of those cool. embarrassing moments when nobody gets up. Oh yeah! <laughs> well, it's, you, you can you know, just come and join the key. And, uh,
3: thank you. Oh, that's a very good question. A uh, very good question. It's the same with any writer, isn't it? You know, whether it is composition, or whether it is literature, or poetry, or whatever it you do, a uh, dance, or these things, um, you have to plan it out. Uh, I think the most important thing is to plan. Uh, is not just to allow just to sit there and think that the music's going to come to you. You have to go to it uh, and to plan. Uh, and the more you can plan off and section off the page, the less it looks scary. Uh, one of my students always say to me, how, what's the, how, how do you start a piece? That's the most important, how do you start? And I always say, well, starting a piece of music is, is just like starting a novel. Uh, you have to ask the question, which then the novel answers. So, for example, you take The Hobbit, I've got it already, so you can't have In a hole in the ground there lives a hobbit. Why is that the best we line? What on earth is a hobbit? And what's it doing living in a hole in the ground? And so the rest of the book then answers all those questions and puts them in context. So when you start writing a piece of music, the minute you put an interval next to each other, it has implications, it has questions, it has stuff that you then have to try and work out um, so that's how I try to look at it. Um, different composers do different things, but it is terrifying. Uh, not to let it terrify you, it, as I mean. It's <laughs> like with any nerves, isn't it? The more you do, the less nervous you get at, uh, the less worried you are. Um, but it's a very good question. Very useful? Is that useful? Yeah, I disagree, because we I mean, You're probably the same age as we are, I think any person who gets around our age or similar thinks that. Uh, and thinks, oh, the music today is a bit nonsense. Um, but I think it's amazing stuff being you written. Know. Um, I, mean, I hate Sam Smith and people like that, but it's not bad music. Uh, it's good music. Um, and so, you know, uh, my, I mean, I, my very first album, I, and I hesitate to say this in church, but it's true, was uh, Run to the Hills by Iron Maiden, Because I was fascinated by the. <laughs> uh, but there is still music being written like that now. Um, there is still music. We just don't know about it. It's being hidden, you know. Um, my, my niece and meant Years ago, it was raves and stuff, and I went to pick them up. And I was like, what is that? This amazing sound, which I didn't hear I didn't know about. It. Um, and it was acid rock and all this kind of stuff. I, I think there's loads of good stuff. It's just that the BBC chooses not to broadcast it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a picture. you don't have to broadcast, you know? not bad. <laughs> Disagree with her. There's a couple of answers to that. Firstly, in my slightly younger days. Um, uh, my publisher said, "Well, you know, if you make this slightly easier, more choirs can do it. I said, I don't want more choirs doing it, I want the best choirs doing it. Uh, that's why I did it like that. I'm not in this to make money, I'm in this to make a statement. Um, and so, but, having said that, uh, recently I have been thinking about it, that there are good choirs that don't have the busy the numbers that you need necessarily to do these pieces than I do. And so I have written a number of things, travelled and um, the St. Mario Parish Church in London, the commission a number of London pieces. Um, and I have made a very simplified version of, of, of what I would normally do, and I've actually been pretty happy with it. Um, so it's kind of simplification that I it's selling out. Well I can't sell that because I've in, but you know what I mean? But it's an, it's an interesting point. It's something I have been thinking about. In terms of writing like congregational hymns, well, it would depend which congregation. Um, I don't really write for guitars and tambourines and and, and stuff like that. That's not my thing. I'm against it, which is not my thing. Um, But if somebody wanted a more classical, uh, 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 lighter song, then I'd be very happy to do that. Um, uh, And I've been commissioned by a big American church to do such a thing, uh, which I'm doing at the moment. In terms of selling out, I should tell you what I'm going to see in December. So four years ago, I was commissioned to write a Christmas carol for the lighting of the Christmas trees in Washington. Um, and so I agreed to do it. We were laughing like this yesterday. And so I repeatedly send it off. And I, of course I forgot that the president is going to be there. <laughs> <laughs> Trump, that one.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else? Yes, thank you.
3: No, I think it was a very good point. Um, uh, and John is an atheist. And I think he's quite open about it. Um, time, when his son died. His son was killed outside Blair College Cambridge, just knocked over. And I think that would really be affected John in many ways. Um, and I think maybe at that point, I don't know, but at that point he had a problem with faith. Not well, isn't it? Wasn't it? Um, but I think um, yes. I mean, of course you can you can you can you can disband, you can't do anything. If you go to see a, a Bertolt Brecht play, you suddenly don't become a communist. You know, uh, it's like you go and listen to the St. Matthew Passion by Bach, you don't suddenly become a Christian. Uh, so I think you can uh, do that. Um, for me, I, I, I find there must be, and I'm I'm, sure a, I'm not a philosopher, but there must be some difference, and I don't know what it is, um, between someone who's writing someone who doesn't fully believe in it and someone who is writing someone who fully believes it. I don't think that can be proved or indeed the in fact that if that's a point. But I feel in my heart that there is a point in that. Um, I don't know what it is, but I, I do think that there is something. Uh, just like, you know, like you a reading translation. Uh, if you want to uh, read the great Danish uh, philosopher Soren uh, Kierkegaard, you can read it in English. But there are words in Danish that don't translate in English, so you miss So well, I just wonder whether that's the same.
1: Last one, Yeah? yeah. One more.
2: I was really interested in your near-death experience. Could you say a little bit more about it and perhaps? I and think you said about not feeling afraid or something like that? Could yes.
3: you say how that may have be been Yes, uh, it's really interesting whenever I mention this, and I don't mention it that often, but whenever I do mention it, there's always people are talking about who have very similar experiences or know someone. So I don't think this is an unusual thing. I think people are afraid to talk about it. Mm. Um, and uh, but you know, let's face it, people are afraid to talk about Christianity. I have got so much stick on social media for being a Christian, which I would never have had if I was a Muslim or, or a Hindu or an atheist. All um, people feel they're sad, you know, uh, which is terrible. Uh, but it's even worse when I say, that, experience. Never, "Oh, they've experienced. They know I've ticked all the boxes. World family, Jesus, and am um, near death, uh, and damned." You know, um, but I think for me what happened is, um, I don't know about nine at the time, so I may have formulated this through this years. When I fell into the water, and you're kicking and pulling, and, and, and the is an amazing thing, uh, uh, because you've kind of, you've tried to stop that really, the water doesn't do anything. And so I I, I eventually realised I can't get out of this. Uh, and I say, well, what is it? And, and at that moment, I, I felt tingling all the way through my body, I felt a, a, a great warmth, that was not just around, as I was called up there, but also inside. And if I had closed my eyes, I would have died and would not
0: have been unhappy.
3: That was the feeling that I had. I didn't see great light or anything like that, but I did feel that there was something else, and that this wasn't the end. Um, no one spoke, or not the any words, or, or tongue, which a lot of people say, um, but I didn't know that that wasn't the end. And if I hadn't been dragged out, I, I would have closed my eyes. Um, and it has been incredibly informative, it, but it's that warmth. And a lot of people say about is it but it's warm. And that's what I've been trying to do over 25 years, is to create warmth in sound, um, because to try and capture that warmth that, that, um, that happened you know, at that moment.
1: Thank you. Mm, thank you. Well,
3: thank you very much uh,
1: to you for coming out uh, this, this evening, uh, for our singers and uh, musicians. Yes, and Doctor, for being here, and especially to our special castaway, Paul Miller.